It's always fun when you start reading a book to see how it's put together and things that authors may do. Some put prefaces in the front. So you read the preface to find out what they think you should find out about the book before you start. Some put an introduction. That introduction starts the book to give you a direction for the book of how it may lay out. Then you've got the sense you've got plots that take place. You've got character development that takes place. You've got conflict that takes place, conclu conclusions that take place. And all of a sudden, you've got that climax that takes place and brings all the things together. And occasionally, occasionally, you get an author that tells you why they actually wrote the book. They actually say, here's the purpose of the book. And the Gospel of John is one of those books. When John gets all the way down to the end of his book, chapter 20, he finally tells us why did he write his book. Here's what we read, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs, those signs are the miracles that take place in the book of John. Jesus did many other signs and miracles in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says there's these signs that you should pay close attention to. But interestingly, he only records seven miracles in his whole book. So here's the seven miracles that we find. Ones that we're pretty familiar with. First one he performs is changing water to wine in John chapter 2. Then he heals the royal official's son and does a healing of him at that time in John chapter 4. John chapter 5 is the healing of the paralytic. He's been at the pool for years waiting to get in the water. When the water was stirred, it didn't happen, and Jesus healed him. And we've all heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000, probably closer to 12 to 15,000, but he fed the 5,000, five fish and two loaves. And then after that, he goes walking on the water. And then we hear of him healing a man born blind. And then John chapter 11, last week as Pastor Michael preached, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That is the last miracle that takes place in the book. And John sort of stops there and says, this is it. Something's supposed to happen from this point. And out of those seven miracles, you're somehow able to conclude that Jesus is the Christ and that believing in him, you can have eternal life. And we come to that place here in John chapter 11, starting in verses 45 to 57. Now, as we do that, it's understanding that John puts a real emphasis on the word believe. And it's a verb. It's not a noun. It's a verb. Believe has some action to it. He never uses the word faith. He never talks about having faith. He talks about believing, something you do. Now, here's how often that word is used in the New Testament. Here's what we find out. Believe is used 269 times in the New Testament. Okay? Out of that 269, 110 of them are just in this gospel. So 110 times in 21 chapters, John uses the word believe. That works out to about five times every chapter. His point is that whatever you read in this gospel, he wants you to do one thing when you get done with it. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life. So as he does that, he's going to do it in our section here because what's happened is he's finished that last miracle. We've had the raising of Lazarus. It's all done. After the raising of Lazarus, things are done. All of a sudden, what happens next is here's what we find out that happens. Everything is now going to be moving forward very quickly. In fact, starting in chapter 12 to the end of the book, 48% of the whole book is written for one week in the life of Jesus. Everything up to this point has been leading up to this one major thing to take place. The death, 
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now it's all set. Lazarus has been raised, and we need to understand a few things just before that final week. Now I'm going to read the passage to you, and this time I'm using the New American Standard. My reason for that is they do a translation thing that gives us a little insight into what's actually happening, that the ESV sort of shifted a little bit. All are good translations, but there's some, one word to listen for as I read this for you, okay? Starting in John chapter 11, you can follow along in your Bibles, starting verse 45. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that is expedient for you, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into the city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and men who went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore, they were seeking for themselves and were saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Do you think he will, not, he will come or not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they may seize him. John makes us understand this, therefore, is pretty important because every time he uses it, he says something else is happening. So after it comes with the right rising of Lazarus from the dead, John wants us to understand there's three different people that we want to see. These scenes are taking place all simultaneously. He says, therefore, there's the Jews. And we have to understand what's happening with the Jews. Therefore, there's the chief priests and Pharisees. Well, what are they doing and what's happening? And therefore, there's Jesus. And what is Jesus going to do after this miracle as well? One miracle. Three different responses taking place. Three different groups to look at. John pauses and says, take, take a moment. Take time to see what actually happens in each situation to know what's taking place. So we're introduced, first of all, therefore the Jews. Verses 45 to 46. And here's what we read. Many, therefore, the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. So we have this group of Jews. They've watched this miracle take place. They saw Jesus stand at the tomb. They knew Lazarus had been dead for three days. They heard Jesus say, come forth, Lazarus, and out he came. And those Jews that were there with Mary, comforting, encouraging her, whatever reason they were there with her, when they saw this, their response was actually to believe in Jesus. And that's that verb we're talking about. They actually believed. And it appears that they understood who he was. He was the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, they would have eternal life. And they believed. They actually believe. But there's another group of Jews. 
They actually saw the same thing. They actually witnessed the very same thing. But they come away and their response is, they're confused. They're not sure what they just saw. They're not sure what really just happened. So what they do is they pack up and they go and talk to the chief priests and Pharisees. They say, here's what we saw. So they said, we were here in Bethany. We saw Jesus come before the grave. We saw him call out and say, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And we saw him raised from the dead. But we're not sure what this means. Why? Because the religious leaders had told them before. Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Christ. He wasn't the one to follow. And they're confused by what they've seen. So you've got Jews who believed. You've got Jews who are confused. And John wants us to understand, that's one group of people we see. We see these Jews. And we see this group of Jews. We find out, first of all, there's those who believed. We find out those who are confused. So now we get shift to another scene. We shift from the Jews that had been there. Now we go to Jerusalem. We find out what takes place there with the chief priests and the Pharisees. And here's what we read of them. Starting in uh, verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Now what we have to understand is what this all means here. There's several things going on. It's understand the Jewish culture, what they have, and the way things function in a, in a, I'll say, political way, but also a legal way. They have set up what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is made up of 71 leaders of their religious leaders, both Sadducees and Pharisees. Sadducees usually ones were connected probably with more rich and the famous of the city, and the Pharisees were more connected with the people of the city that took place. The Pharisees were more conservative in their theology than the Sadducees, but they both made up this group of 70 people. Out of that Sanhedrin, there's one person who's the high priest, and they oversee it, so there's 71 who gather to do work for the city. Now, what took place at that time was a high priest would be in place. We're going to learn about Caiaphas. There's a high priest, and the high priest was put in place in the Old Testament, according to Old Testament law, for a whole life they served. Once they became high priests, they stayed in that position until they died. Under Roman law, though, they decided, we want high priests that help us. So they served on behalf of the Roman government. So the Roman government would appoint a high priest. When they appoint the high priest, he served as long as they wanted him to, or until he wasn't serving them as they wanted him to. So we've got the Sanhedrin. So what takes place is the miracle takes place. Lazarus is raised from the dead. The Jewish people come and tell them what they saw. Their response as chief priests and Pharisees, we need to conduct a council. So they bring the whole Sanhedrin together to meet together to discuss what they have just seen. Here's how they respond. They respond with the words, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. So they recognize it's not just this one. They knew the seven signs he did. They knew all the other ones did. This man, Jesus, just performed the most unbelievable sign you can imagine. He raised the man from the dead. But he did more than that. He did all these other signs that we saw as well. What are we going to do with this man? They continue on as they talk about him. What are we going to do? This man's performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here's their concern. If we let Jesus keep preaching and living life like he is, he's going to do more signs like he just did. You know what's going to happen? 
more Jewish people are going to believe just like these that believed here. And we were just told, be careful, what's going on here? The confused Jews told them this. And they realized, listen, if there's more people who believe, what's going to happen? Well, all of a sudden you got all these people who are now saying Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and the Roman government is not going to like that. They're going to become concerned. And the Roman government is going to come in here and sweep in, and they're going to destroy our temple, the place, and they're also going to destroy us, the nation. And we're not sure what to do with this, with this one man that is here doing this. And there's this confusion that takes place among them. Just imagine if you were there. There's 70 of us in a room. And we're trying to figure out what to do. And we're all talking among ourselves. Confusion is sitting there. And all of a sudden, you hear all this mumbling and stuff going on. And finally, the high priest, Caiaphas, speaks up. And here's what we hear. Verse 49. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them. Now here's Caiaphas. Keep in mind, there's a high priest of the Sanhedrin. He's appointed by the Roman government. Caiaphas actually served for 18 years as a high priest. Therefore, very supportive of the Roman government. When it identifies that year, that year it's talking about the year that Jesus died. He's the one overseeing this whole event and everything taking place. How's Caiaphas respond? He says this. You know, just imagine you sit in the room, all this confusion, you're talking. All of a sudden, he stands up and speaks. You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. So the Pharisees, chief priests are talking about, well, this man's going to go on. What's going to happen? The nation is going to be lost to the Roman government. Caiaphas pauses them and says, wait a second. You guys don't understand what's really going on here. If the problem is this one man, Jesus, then isn't it expedient this one man dies and then the nation can live? As opposed to this one man living and the whole nation dying, what if this one man dies, then the nation can live? And those are the words of Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin. Now John inserts here his comments. This is not Caiaphas talking. This is John as he's writing his book of what just happened. Here's his commentary on this event. Verse 51. Now he, this Caiaphas did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So John pauses and says, listen, if you're reading this book, I want you to understand what just happened. Caiaphas just made this statement of what, what should happen. The one man should die, and the nation should live. But I want you to understand what just took place. There's a prophecy of God that just took place. Now, Caiaphas isn't a prophet, but the words that he spoke were a prophecy. And then he tells us what the prophecy is. He says the prophecy is that this one man would die. That's Jesus. By the fact of him dying, he's now going to gather. Who's he going to gather? The children of God into one. 
And he says, that is what we're talking about happening with the death of Jesus Christ. That somehow for us to comprehend the truth that's going to occur with the death of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just die on a cross. That death on the cross has great implications and outcomes. His death on the cross means he's going to gather, start gathering people. He's going to gather what people? Those who believe in him and who are they? They become the children of God. If they become the children of God, where do they go? They go to become one in the body of Christ. Now he uses the word here to gather. It's used a variety of ways in the New Testament. It's actually used of a synagogue. So when the Sanhedrin was called to gather, that was a gathering that took place there. It's used the idea if you go fishing and you put a net out, you then gather a whole bunch of fish and you get fish that way. It's used of Jesus when he talks about gathering sheep, so you can gather sheep. But it's also used of gathering fruit. Now, now Mel really enjoys, my wife, going picking fruit. And we do blueberry picking every year. And this year we also added peaches to our picking. And just a couple weeks ago we went peach picking. Now peach picking is a little different than blueberry picking. Blueberry picking we went with three of our grandkids. And we went for an hour. And in that one hour, we gathered a total of nine pounds of blueberries. That's pretty good, isn't it? Well, then we went peach picking. And in 10 minutes, we gathered 20 pounds of peaches. Now, I'm assuming you gather peaches. Peaches are different than apples. When you gather apples, you just sort of throw them in, and they can bang against each other, and everything is just fine. But not true of peaches. When you go peach picking, you, you're very careful which ones you pick. I mean, you don't want any damage to that peach at all. You don't want any bugs on that peach at all. You want no, nothing wrong with that peach. You want that soft skin to still be there and nothing come out of it or nothing going into it. And when you grab that peach, you don't throw it into it. You gently, you gently take that peach and set it down into your bucket. You know why you do that, don't you? You do not want to bruise a peach. You can bruise a peach real easy. You don't bruise apples. Bang an apple together, it's just fine. You bang peaches together, they're not good. You're very gentle, very gentle and caring for how you take that peach and put it down into that bucket. This is a word that Jesus is using for his relationship to us. It's a very caring relationship that he wants. He doesn't pluck us. He gathers us. He reaches out and embraces us. He reaches out and cares for us. When Jesus thinks of his death, when you think of his death, there's this relational component to it of his great love, his great care, his great concern that he is reaching out to embrace each and every one of us and to pull us in. Not to be forgotten. Not somehow somehow sneaking in. No, no, no. Where he intentionally reaches out and embraces each one of us and pulls us in and gathers us to himself. That love is so great that he not just gathers us. He then all of a sudden turns to us and says, you're a child of God. And he changes who we are. Oh, we've been walking in the domain of darkness before. And now we're transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. And we are children of God. And he says, now you make you children of God and you're a part of this family. 
But that's not all. He not only gathers us as children like we're just sort of here and there. No, no, no. He says, then I pull you in and make you one in the body of Christ. Folks, these are great truths. Great truths for us to know, to appreciate, to grasp of what God has done for us. Through the death of Jesus Christ, we're gathered, we're gathered in. Through death of Jesus Christ, we are made children of God. Through the death of Jesus Christ, we are made one as the body of Christ. And we get to experience that in what? The one local church. All that with the death of Christ. All that being said by the prophecy of Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. What's going to take place when they kill this one man, Jesus. John says, here's all that's going to take place. It'll gather the children of God into one. So we've got the Jews. We've got the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and Pharisees. Therefore, Jesus, what does he do during this time? Look what happens next. They're making their plan together. They're going to kill Jesus. And here's Jesus, verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. He went away from there to a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Just one verse on Jesus. But it identifies after he raised Lazarus from the grave. After they believed and they went off and told the Pharisees and the chief priests, Jesus withdrew from all those people and publicly found himself in a small town away from everybody, no longer in public view. And he goes to a town called Ephraim. And Ephraim rings a bell for Jewish people. It's not just the name of a town. It's the name of the son of Joseph. Joseph, who found himself in Israel, taken from the nation to Egypt, where he's sold by his brothers into slavery. While he's there, he prospers. As he prospers, Joseph has two sons. One is Manasseh, and the other one is Ephraim. When he names his son Ephraim, this is out of Genesis 41:52. it says this. The name of the second one he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Think about it. Joseph saying when he was troubled, afflicted and all, there he found fruitfulness. Jesus goes to this town, we're reminded of Ephraim. Why? Because Jesus is going to be fruitful in his time of affliction, which is his death. And that fruitfulness is he's going to gather together the children of God and make them one. But there's more of a feel of Joseph in this than that. Joseph, towards the end of his life, he's been in Egypt for a long time. His family come back to him. His brothers are wrestling with all that they did to him. And Joseph says this about his life. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph takes his affliction and identifies for his brother he kept the whole nation alive. 
Jesus, by his death and his affliction, will raise up, in a sense, a whole new nation of people who are alive in Jesus Christ. And he goes to the small town of Ephraim. We hear the echoes of Joseph's life through it. And he waits. And he waits. Why? They're planning to kill him. They will not kill him. Because Jesus' hour had not yet come. Jesus will give up his life for us. They will not take it. He will sacrifice himself in his hour, not because they want to kill him, but he's here to give his life that he can gather the children of God into one. So we've got the Jews. We've got the chief priests and the Pharisees. We've got Jesus, and we hear what they do. Now what happens next is everything getting ready for that final week in the life of Jesus, that final death and resurrection. How do we move towards that? And here's what we read, our final therefores. Verse 54, I'm sorry, 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went to Jerusalem out of the, out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So the Passover was going to come, but the practice was you came early made some sacrifice and everything, got yourself purified that you could celebrate the Passover. So they're coming out of the country, the, the small towns, communities all around, they're traveling to Jerusalem, and they're getting in Jerusalem to make those sacrifices. They're going to be at the temple. Here's what they say. Verse 56, Therefore the Jews were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Do you think that he will not come this year to the feast at all? So here's been the practice. Every year they've heard Jesus came to the temple. Every year he came, it was during Passover. He's done it every year for the last couple years. Well, they expect him to do it again this year. You can imagine them. A text went out to everybody. Hey, Jesus is coming to the temple. And everybody's buzzing. They're just waiting for him. They're just waiting for him. Just waiting for him. But they haven't seen him yet. And they are waiting to see if he's going to come. That's what the people are doing while Jesus is in Ephraim getting ready for the triumphal entry, they're all in a buzz about what he's going to do next. Here's the chief priests and Pharisees. Verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. What's their plan? Well, if anybody sees Jesus around Jerusalem, you come and tell us, we'll make sure we go seize him in order to what? That we may kill him. And the plan is all set for the nation of Israel to get ready for the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John's whole point, this whole point following the resurrection of Lazarus is this, that Jesus, that Jesus died, and in his death, he's gathering together the children of God to be one. Now, we find ourselves today in this situation as we contemplate this, that we're all in a variety of places when it comes to our relationship to Jesus Christ. We've all met some people who are like the chief priests and Pharisees. When all of a sudden, when they hear of Jesus Christ, they become angered by who he is. Somehow you would think they respond in a different way because of his grace, for his love, for his death, for the good things he had done. But somehow they're angered by what he does. You may have had friends like this, may have family members like this. Maybe when you came to Christ, people responded this way. But we all know of people who are angered when somehow when they hear the gospel, they do not embrace it. 
They're actually angered by it. And we need to know that's exactly what happened in Jesus' day. People got angered by what he did. Not everybody embraced him. He actually angered people by what he came and brought forth in the good news of Jesus Christ, that gospel we talk about. And so in the world we live in, we need to know we're going to come across people who are angered, actually angered by the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he is. But we also need to know there's people who are confused. They're just like those Jewish people who hear things, they wonder things, let me be a friend of yours, me somebody, they've watched your life change a little bit, they're like, I'm confused, what's going on here? You're not like you used to be. You're not even behaving like you used to be. What's going on? And they're confused by what's going on. And you can tell them about Christ, they can read the Bible, but they're confused. They don't bring understanding to it completely. And then they go talk to their pastor or some religious leader, but they need some answers to what's going on. And you may be one of those people. You can be here today, and it's like you're here because a family member brought you, a friend came along and said you should visit church. And in your mind, you don't know where you stand with Christ, but you're just sort of confused. Why do these people come together every week like this? And you're really sitting there, and you know, I've got questions that need to be answered. And just like the slide says, text a question. We'll answer the questions. Pastor Michael will answer a question for you at any time. But we need confused, and also we need to answer questions. And you may be one of those people. And if you're confused, you need questions answered. And we're here for that. But just know that is a response that many people have. They're confused by what happens with the life of Christ and what he really can do for them, what he's done in the lives of other people. And that confusion is since they need answers to the questions. But there's the final group of people who believe. And that group of people who believe all of a sudden are introduced to these wonderful concepts and this wonderful theology of who Christ is. That he's one who gathers us as children of God to be one. You know, I think for many of us, that's not a truth we ever deny. But I sometimes wonder if we really let that truth seep. Seep from our minds into our souls. That our souls really embrace the truthfulness of being gathered by the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we're all aware of why we're unworthy. I think if we told people how we really feel about ourselves, or we think people think about us, we know why they would reject us. We know why we're not loved. We know things that we've done. We know things we're ashamed of. We know shame we have because of things done to us. And for some reason, we sense that we are not worthy of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do not embrace, we do not appreciate, we do not understand, we do not take time to let it seep into our soul. Oh, we agree to it, folks. But somehow, for us to take that truth and let it seep down into our souls that Jesus Christ truly loves you. That he really cares for you. That he died for you. And he gathers you, gathers you to himself. That he embraces you, that he loves you. To go from our minds to our souls, that he truly loves, gathers, brings us in 
individually for who we are and what he's done for us. And he wants us in his family. And he brings us in and then makes us, not just there, he makes us children of God. This whole new relationship we have with God that we call him Abba Father. And we have this relationship with God the Father we've never had before. Because the love of the Lord Jesus Christ gathering us into him. And then, and then, to make us one with fellow believers? That there's others like us who've been loved by Christ, who become children of God, who now are embraced as well, and we are now one with them? And they're just as broken as we are. They struggle just like we do with being loved. They're just like me, who Christ has gathered and loved, made children of God, and now made us one. And for us, for us to allow that to seep into our souls, brothers and sisters, to embrace the love of Christ for you, to embrace that you're a child of God, to embrace that you're one with fellow believers, that all of that through the death of Christ, and to think that that was prophesied by the high priest Caiaphas, where John interprets for us of what it all means. You may be here today and you're listening to this and you say, that's the Jesus I've never heard about that I need to know and you need to trust in him today. Oh, if you hear that, you know that means you're a sinner, that Christ has died on the cross for your sins, you've been raised, he was raised on the third day. You need to believe, that's what John said, believe. 110 times he said, believe, just believe, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you will have eternal life. It just seems this morning that, you know, with this truth, and I talk about let it seep into your souls, that we're going to take some time to just allow you to reflect, to, to, to walk through and think. Think about Christ embracing and gathering you in. Think about Christ making you a child of God. Think about him making you one with others. And then after you do that, then give thanks. Just some time to thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me on the cross, on the cross that you died. So we're going to go to this time of reflection and thanksgiving. And uh, so you can bow your heads, close your eyes, reflect on those truths that Jesus Christ died to gather the children of God into one. And then you can give thanks.